Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Coming up in this edition of the TV Black Box podcast, a new home for The Bachelor. Fierce sports fans might soon have to pay to watch the Olympics on TV and Married at First Sight proves once again it is one of the most powerful brands on TV. Welcome to the podcast where people in the TV industry get their news. This is TV Black Box, the podcast. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is TV Black Box. Bringing you the inside goss from the TV industry. Hello, I'm Rob McKnight. I'll introduce the panel shortly. But first, it was during this week in 1987 that saw the premiere of the smash hit comedy... Children ran for 259 episodes and starred Ed O'Neill, who went on to modern family fame. The show spawned many international versions, including efforts from Armenia, Brazil, Croatia, Germany, Israel and the UK. And it's not the kind of show you could watch or make these days. Because they ban everything that was funny. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. On this edition of the TV Black Box podcast, I'm joined by Mulk, Aaron Ryan, Sarah Monaghan, Phil Kosh, and David Robbo Robinson. Mulk, you couldn't make Married at First Sight anymore, could you? And it's probably not a bad thing, Rob. I <laughs> oh, see. I knew you'd take that view. It's it wasn't very good show. in the first place. You mean Married with Children? Did you mean married with children? Did I say married at first sight? <laughs> you did. Ah, <laughs> oh, that brand gets into your brain. Well, that's what Channel 9 would hope. Look, yeah. I, I think the challenge around particularly lots of television from the 80s, Rob, and even before that, is that not all television ages well. It's still funny. Yeah, it very funny. It is still funny. funny. Uh, maybe not. There are still reruns on TV here, and it is still funny. Yeah. yeah. Take a show like Kingswood Country. Everyone says you couldn't make that. You couldn't make that today. It's racist and da-da-da. But you think about Ted from Kingswood Country. He always came off second best. Bruno who was the subject mm. of his racism, and it was <laughs> racism. Oh, we don't Bruno, talk about Bruno. <laughs> number one song. Bruno it's, always came up trumps. They did remake Kingswood Country. It's called Bullpit, and it wasn't mm. very good. Yeah, because they didn't evolve. The shows have to evolve and all that kind of stuff. But um, anyway, that's our rant for the week. Let's get into it because there's a lot to discuss. And the Sunshine State is now the Bachelor State. Network 10 has announced the roses are being packed up as the production of the reality love show moves to Queensland. Since the show began, it is always called New South Wales Home. But with the introduction of support from the Queensland government, the mansion is on the move. 
David, should the Queensland government be paying for this? I wouldn't think so, Robert, because this show hasn't worked for uh, some time. It's old, it's tired. I've never liked the program ever. And it appears that most Australians join me in that uh, in that opinion. Uh, look, good on the producers for getting this. This is fantastic for the production, really, to get uh, a government to put in some cash um, as long as you make the production in their state. Look, fantastic, all power to them. Uh, it's just not something that uh, floats my boat, and I don't know that it's floating many other people's boats either. If I may, Robbo, I think the challenge is the Queensland government dishing out grants or any government dishing out grants to get a production made, frankly, like at that point, they don't care if it's any good. All they care about is that they're trying to promote jobs and, and productions coming to their state so that they can build the industry and give people opportunities to, to hone their craft. That's great. I agree that the longevity of it, if it was a better program, means that it'll return again and again and again, and there's those kinds of opportunities. Uh, but the development opportunity is very different to the audience response opportunity, don't you think? Oh, of course, but I was more talking about Network 10. I wasn't even thinking about the government. The government can put money into whatever it wants. What I'm suggesting is why is 10 even green lighting this again? Because they've got nothing else. We Big hole in the schedule. It's a dead brand and they should not be returning it. Uh, but they will because they'll drive it into the ground and then even when it's dead, they'll say, oh, we'll treat it like Weekend at Bernie's and we'll try to revive it and pretend it's still alive. Um, but... I think from a Queensland government perspective, there's a real issue here, Philip, that I understand the idea of getting dramas and movies here to Queensland. That's real um, opportunity to show what Queensland looks like to other parts of the world while creating jobs. The idea of bringing a second-rate franchise to the Sunshine State for a one-off series that no one will watch... Uh, I'm just not copying that this is a good investment. Well, look, I think it will showcase the Sunshine State. You know, there will be some beautiful locations. Somebody might actually want to uh, visit your state after seeing The Bachelor. But as we know, it's all down to casting, and they seem to have a terrible track record of casting bachelors that repulse people. So um, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? they don't find love, they dump their wives. You know, it's just it's a bit of a dire situation. That said, I read a story in New Ideas speculating on who they would be, and I think it was very optimistic, but um, they came up with Dr Chris, who's always a perennial on these lists, and he won't ever mm. do it. Um, they also had Tony Armstrong, an ABC sports presenter that everyone loves. He'd be genius, but I can't see him doing it. Uh, and then, I don't know, maybe home state advantage. Jet Kenny, I think he would uh, get female heart pulses racing. So I I think it's all you about... You can see the, the opening shots already, Philip, of Jet <laughs> Kenny running down the beach in his you know, sluggers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Very true. Uh, look, not, not bad ideas, but realistically, if you were going to cash in on a real franchise you'd be looking at married at first sight that's the biggest thing in tv if you can get it to film in your state you are on a winner i reckon all right let's move on because they've captured bond now amazon could be making a play for the biggest sporting event in the world the broadcast rights to the olympics will soon be up for grabs and the streaming giant is apparently interested that is much to the annoyance of the free-to-air networks who want to see the current anti-siphoning laws expanded 
to include streamers. Currently, the 30-year-old laws only apply to Foxtel and allow the networks to have first dibs on major sporting events. Now, the games are incredibly expensive for Aussie TV, but would be peanuts for Amazon, which is currently worth over a trillion dollars. Aaron, this is interesting to me because we had a big conversation on the TV Black Box uh, Slack channel the other day about, well, what is this? This was a story in the Sydney Morning Herald and it, it got us thinking, would Amazon be able to do this because the Olympics are on the anti-siphoning list? We know that streamers are not held under the same broadcast restrictions as Foxtel and the free-to-air networks, but we were hypothesising, could Amazon pay big for the Olympics directly and then, as part of the anti-siphoning list, offer them to Seven for an exorbitant fee, which Seven or Nine or Ten, whoever, would say, no, we're not doing that, and obtain the rights, and therefore you and I would have to pay to see them. Well, it's an interesting way that this works. So there would have to be a law change, but let's assume that the laws change so that Amazon are in the same field as Foxtel. So what could happen is the IOC have to actually go to the, to the free-to-air first and put it on, and say we're offering you the Olympics, but they don't just get any any number that they want the, um, just because it's the anti-siphoning list. So let's just say they offered two hundred million dollars for three three Olympic games. Seven, nine, ten, ABC, SBS say no, no, too too expensive. So then they go to elsewhere. So Amazon could pick it up for the two hundred million, but under the anti-siphoning list, they may have to sub-license and offer it back to. To, to the commercials, but I don't know, that point, I don't know at what value that they have to do it. If they pay $200 million, they might have to say to 7, 9 or 10, well, we'll give it back to you because it's on the anti-siphoning list, but you have to pay $100 million. That's the only part that I don't know. But yes, it has to be offered to the free-to-wares first, but not just at any price. It's what the IOC wants for it, and if, if they say no, it could actually go to somewhere like Amazon. Well, my question is, can Amazon just go straight to the Olympics and say we want to buy the worldwide rights? Maybe not officially. They're like the umbrella corporation at this point. They just own the entire world. They could just own the Olympics. Why not officially? Couldn't they do that? I don't know. I'm. I, I don't know. Aaron was saying that they, the IC, had to go to uh, the broadcasters, the free-to-air broadcasters first. This is. Oh, really Aaron was supposing, territory. based on a change to the anti-siphoning laws that hasn't taken place right now, if Amazon hypothetically picked up the Olympics then they've got some navigating to do within the Australian context, probably because probably the law would change. Probably. But if Amazon go to the IOC and say, we're going to offer you $2 billion, I don't know, pick a, a number. A billion dollars, yeah. For the global rights, which they could well do and well afford, everybody's in a pickle, aren't they? Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting one. And Sarah, I come back to this idea. If the Olympics weren't on free-to-air television, would you be willing to stump up your cash and pay for them? Summer Olympics? Nah, <laughs> not really. I like the Winter Olympics better. I'm that one person that likes <laughs> Winter Olympics. Remember, Seven and Foxtel have already tried this wrong. A few Summer Olympics ago, they offered an app that you had to buy and within... Or, sorry, mm. you could download the app and within the app, you could buy a subscription to watch the Olympics on the go. Now, you could still watch it on free-to-air TV, but, of course, you were limited to whatever things they were showing whenever they wanted to show them. What they were trying to test, ultimately, is whether or not people would pay for the Olympics because they were 
proffering that, you know, here in our app, you can get all of the sports, all of the times, like they offer now for free via 7 Plus. Uh, and, and largely, the market rejected that idea. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And I, I'm also sitting here and thinking in this day and age, is it right to have an anti-siphoning list? Now, I oh, like... No, it's not. Well, I like protecting free-to-air TV, you mm-hmm. know, because... I do think it's an industry that employs a lot of people. It employs a lot more people than... uh, It employs a lot more Australians than Netflix, Amazon, Disney Plus and all of those. streamers. I love No, in Australia, Mark. In Australia. Right. And I I, I think I did say they employ more Australians. Uh, Let's just... That's what I was trying to say. Um, So, you know, I do think companies that are employing Australians do deserve some protections. I guess the challenge that we face today in the modern TV landscape, particularly with streamers in play, like your Netflix and your Disney Plus and your Amazon and all of those people, is that the old way of doing things, which was by regions and licensing by region, is very quickly going out the window. Oh, sure. You know, Netflix have said, we're only going to get commission things that we can put into every one of our markets. We're only going to pick that stuff up in that context. Um Amazon and Disney Plus are heading down the same direction, though they have, like everything else, um, hangover agreements on shows and products that they that were in place when they started up. So they have to deal with and address those things. The, the challenge that we face around the Olympics is that when it is overseas, the host broadcaster in Australia, it employs some people, there is no question, but nowhere near like the amount of people that it employs when it's in Australia. For example, the 2032 Olympics in Brisbane. Mm. There'll be heaps of people involved because they offer up a global broadcast centre. When it's overseas, eh, look, we're going to top out at maybe, what, 80 a team of, there, give or take, and that's for, 40. A, for a short... more 40. For a short period of time, a burst. That is... You would, you would have more people working on, you know, the new production drama on 10 or 7 or whatever. So mm. in that context, it's actually like the Olympics aren't a huge thing to have in it. And it's all sport on the anti-siphoning list, all sport. So given that we're in this brand new world where we're getting used to more global kind of stuff and we want to see stuff same day and date, we've been demanding that since the start of Game of Thrones, if not before, why then are we stuck in a situation where, as an example, Foxtel have to join bidding rights with Nine to get the NRL, but they can't broadcast the NRL Grand Final live? That's that well, to it's me. It's an event of national significance. Yeah, but why the... can't they broadcast it at the same time? Like they part of the deal with Nine and Seven is that they cannot broadcast the Grand Finals live. Everything yeah, else. I, I still life. don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem Mate, with that. Mate, when I'm stumping up all the cash as Foxtel, I have a massive problem with that because we've paid the majority of that monies and mm-hmm. we don't get the, the big game. Yeah. I think the anti-siphoning list could be reduced, but I think it would be a sad day if you had to fork out for the, you know, for the AFL final series, the NRL final series to watch like Ash Barty this year in the Australian Open yeah. and then the Olympics. And that could be from four or five different um you know, streaming services, and you'd be... I mean, it's just a sad day, I think, for Australia if we have to do that for major significant events. But, yeah, it could be reduced. 
Yeah. Well, it's the slap that continues to reverberate around Hollywood ever since Will Smith took matters into his uh, own hands yep. by slapping Chris Rock at the Oscars. Mr. Entitled is right. seeing some of his entitlements disappear. <laughs> From Netflix and Sony pausing Smith's projects to questions surrounding Apple pushing back a release date, the Oscar winner, unlike Chris Rock, will continue to feel the pain of that slap for some time to come. Uh, Robo, very good intro. Thank you. Uh, Phil. (laughs) (laughs) Phil, uh, these announcements are all very well and good, but can you see any actual damage to Smith in the long term? No. Excuse me. Not not in the long term. I think he does need... He'll he'll have to go away and hide whatever billionaire movie stars do when they need to take time off. He'll need to do that for a couple of years, I think. I don't think it's, it's going to be a quick fix. Uh, you know, but Hollywood does forgive. Uh, you know, it, it, there have been dozens of stars that have been involved in all sorts of scandals and we've written them off and give it to I mean, Rowan Polanski still gets standing ovations on a stage and he, he raped a 15 He was a part of the Academy until 2018. This is a man who... A lot's happened in those four years. I find it extraordinary and there's still a bunch of stars that... Um, support Roman Polanski, or they certainly did very publicly up until the Me Too movement. Mm. Um, mm. But, you know, th- th- there's a stack of people that have been disgraced. Winona Ryder, um, Mel Gibson, our own Mel Gibson, you know, made homophobic and anti-Semitic remarks at various points in his career. Well, he came back and was nominated as an Academy, uh, uh, for an Academy for directing Hacksaw Ridge. So Hollywood forgives, and they Hollywood worships success and Hollywood worships money and Will Smith combined both and he will definitely be back. It'll just be a matter of time. Sarah, the, the, the tide has certainly turned against Will Smith this week. It's been quite interesting to see how Hollywood has turned on him when it looked like he might get away with it. Yeah, I mean, I'm surprised at how quickly we have gone from, you know, like Roman Polanski being allowed to still win stuff to now somebody bitch slaps someone's on stage and all of a sudden everybody loses their mind. <laughs> I mean, it, it it seems a minor infraction compared to some of the things that they've let people get away with. But I guess now outrage is the thing and everybody is just bored with COVID and every little thing that anybody does, no matter what it is, you're getting cancelled for because that's just what we enjoy these days. But I'm sure, like, he'll... Bruno Mars lit up a cigarette and everyone's going to forget about Will. And so I give it like two weeks and all of his stuff will be put back onto, you know, contract again. Oh, Aaron, I think Will Smith is going to be in purgatory a lot longer than two weeks. No, I don't think so at all. He's already had his movies that are, that he's already filmed, so they'll come out. And any new film that he does is not going to come out for a couple of years. And, you know, they know that. And I agree with Sarah. I, I think it's... You know, I don't want to feel like I want to say this because I don't uh, agree with the fact of slapping someone. But in the scheme of things, I think the big things are obviously things that involve children, um, sexual harassment and discrimination. They're going to be, you know, ones that you're you're either out forever or out for a very long time. But seriously, slapping someone on stage, I, I, I don't think it's going to actually hurt him at all. You're only as bankable okay. as your last box office. And if That's right. This affects if the if the audience respond and say no, no, Will, we've had enough. Independent of what Hollywood think, if the audience don't turn out to Will Smith films, he's cooked. 
Yeah, that's always the final litmus test. All right, we touched on quotas for streamers a moment ago, but let's go back to that because quotas for streamers, or a lack thereof, continue to be a hot-button issue for Australia's entertainment industry. Last week, we spoke about the federal government's proposed 5% revenue from the big streamers being put back into local productions, but some want it to go further. Screen Forever Conference CEO Matt Diener wants to see quotas introduced for Indigenous productions. What do you think, Robbo? Have the streamers had it too good for too long? Do we need them to put it in, not just into Australian content but into Indigenous stories? Yeah, I think there, there needs to be responsibility, and I think we're not we're not really seeing a lot of that. We've we've let them come in; they've kind of pillaged uh, a lot of money. But you know what I mean? As in, they get a lot of money from us, and we don't get a lot back for it. I think when we're talking about local stories, I know that I've been. Um, you know, in the minority here when I've been talking about the fact that it's important for Australian stories to be told uh, in Australia on our screens and I think it's important for Netflix and Amazon and Stan to do all of those things. I, I think it's fantastic that someone's come out and said that Indigenous stories should also be part of that. I think that's really, really important. Um, and I just hope that... Robo, can I, can yeah. I just ask, though? Yeah. Um, this leads us down a path of making stories for the sake of making stories. It means... Some, just say I'm a writer. Hypothetically. Okay. And I've got a story, sci-fi adventure. And I go, oh, geez, I'm not going to get funding in Australia because they won't fund this kind of thing. So even though I could be telling a story, even from an Australian viewpoint, it wouldn't sort of qualify. But then I go, I know a sure way fire to get money. I'll make it an Australian story. We'll set it in the bush, la, la, la. And then I go, you know what? Good. But if I really want the coin... I'm gonna push the indigenous story, and I'll get my movie made. But if we didn't, like, if yeah, if we didn't have quotas or if we didn't have government funding, then we wouldn't have a local film industry. It just wouldn't happen. So, and if you think about classics throughout the years, there would be no. I'm Priscilla. not saying not to fund films. No, I understand. I'm that. not saying that at all. No, no, I understand that. But I'm just saying to have quotas and to have government input that has been really important. And it's only because of that have we had Priscilla or Muriel's Wedding or anything like that. Um, so I understand what you're saying by forcing Australian stories, but. You know, maybe that's on the other side of it. Yes, you have but to... But what I'm saying, Robbo, is if you have a quota, yeah. you are pushing this down the throat of people. But otherwise Shouldn't you won't Shouldn't these stories yeah. stand up on their own? Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, Muriel's Wedding were amazing stories. And the reason they flourished overseas was because they were unique and they had a hook. But if you've just got quotas for the sake of quotas, then we're going to, and we could possibly, I'm not saying it will happen, but we could end up with tripe that, great, we've just spent $5 million or $10 million making a film or a, or a drama series that nobody wants to watch, but guess what? We ticked a box. But without quotas, we won't see the stories at all. There just won't be stories told, and that's my fear, is that if you don't have it at least legislated, yes, you're going to have some of those stories or some of those productions that are tripe and, and have just been made to tick a box. I understand that. But on the other side of the coin, you then risk having zero Australian stories happening because they'll only be for you know a, a smaller market. And I think that's a problem, isn't it? My question is, is how many Aboriginal actors does Australia have? I mean, is there like, we've got some amazing ones that I get to see on Netflix. But growing up, there was always a thing about Aboriginals didn't like being on camera. So I wonder how many actors there are and how many productions you can make without using the same 
you know, six people over and over and over I think Australian productions do that in general. Anything that's commissioned uses the same bunch of actors, new talent has to go overseas and become big stars and then we go, oh, look at these people. Uh, That's not just an Indigenous problem in this country, it's an Australian problem because the, the people funding these films or producing them all go to the same pool of talent. Yeah, that's true. To, to address the, the cynical screenwriter in you, Rob, uh, the, the assertion by uh, the from from the uh, from the Screen Forever conference wasn't about prioritising Indigenous stories by itself. It was acknowledging that there are a whole bunch of Indigenous filmmakers, production companies that now exist that mm. should be given opportunity. Additionally, when we're leaning into quotas, so if we're going to establish a quota scenario that an amount of that quota should prioritise working with these Indigenous uh, production companies. And, look, if they tell Indigenous stories, great. If they're using Indigenous cast talent on and behind the screens, excellent. Lots of them do. It's not let's roll out another Indigenous, you know, story or let's reset our story to put it in there. Have a look, for example, at AMC uh, in the States, AMC Plus here, delivered Warwick Thornton's Indigenous zombie series, Firebite. That was bloody amazing. See, I love the idea of that. I love the idea of an Indigenous filmmaker... And, and, and actors doing a sci-fi space odyssey or something like that. You know, it doesn't have to be the same outback story sure. is what I'm saying. And I'm not saying there isn't room for those stories. What I'm saying is that we need to widen the pool, not, not net it off. I think that by try, by suggesting that we should, within the funding pool, prioritise opportunities for Indigenous film and TV makers isn't to reduce the opportunity. I think it actually widens it. It actually includes a whole bunch of people who often are marginalised or not given the opportunity that their Anglo or other uh, filmmaking uh, peers are. Okay, I, I think I think when you look at quotas though, and not and not just people and their individual work, you have a missed opportunity. Like for example, you know, using Rob's, if I was a writer, I've got a friend of mine that that's indigenous. Um, and I have honestly spent more time in, in remote communities um, and within the remote justice system, uh, sorry, in the prison system with Indigenous people than he has. And I would be able to come up and actually with, with something that's probably better understanding of Indigenous culture mm-hmm. than him in that, in that example, but he would automatically well, get the funding. Yep. And I just, I, I think that's a missed opportunity, though. Like, Come I'm on, not Mark, saying, live in the real we're, world. We're layering we a whole bunch of rules about something that actually doesn't exist right now assuming that it will be prioritised A over B. But because we know how the system works. How does the system work, Rob? Let's be real. The Please. Sy- you want to know how the system works? You've got an allocation of Indigenous funding, and even if you're uh, Aaron, who is a middle-aged white man telling an Indigenous story, that won't get funding because it will have to be from an Indigenous writer. I say says who. I mean, I'm sure there are all sorts. Because you're now in the age where only gay people can play gay people. That's, I mean, we're at that point. But this is why this is this is why it's on the run sheet because they're talking about having First Nations quotas. I mean, it, it doesn't exist now, but they're talking about having it so that my friend would be prioritised over me. That's actually what would happen. We're not saying it exists now, but that, that's why we're talking about but wouldn't it. Wouldn't your friend be prioritised over you because your friend is Indigenous and has probably had a very lived life experience to you? Isn't, isn't that what the quote is addressing, the disadvantage that that entire community is coming from? 
Yeah, but that's the point. But it doesn't in that particular case. He's never he's never lived in an Indigenous community, doesn't speak any Aboriginal language, lives like, I'm just saying, a, t- a typical white life. I've, I've actually spent more time in, in Indigenous communities. I've done for a number of years and in the justice system. So in terms of me and him in a, in a writing thing, I, I, I would actually be more experienced than he is in, in Indigenous writing. But but under this system, he he I, he would get the uh, the you know the the funding, and I wouldn't. And I'm just saying that that could be a missed opportunity. I think it's a really complicated yeah. situation. It's it's not as cut and dry as we're going to be able to to navigate here. That's for sure. I, I would offer, if ever this was to come into play, it would be highly scrutinised by all sorts of people because we have great Anglo-Saxon, great you know, um, Asian, great, as in ethnic backgrounds, and great Indigenous film and TV makers that all want a slice of that pie. So however that legislation would play out, there would be lots of people looking because we want to tell the best stories. And just because there's a quota doesn't mean Robbo, Aaron, Philip and Sarah get money. You've still got to pitch and sell your story. You've still got to come up with the goods to meet the requirement for that funding. And it's not as simple as, dear government, give me money. Love, Malk. No, of course not, Malk. And and we all appreciate and understand that. And it's funny we're talking about this and I come back to the idea that the Queensland government gave (laughs) The Bachelor money to come into Queensland. (laughs) So where that leaves us, I don't know. And it is a complicated... um, It's a complicated story and and, and I don't know that we have the answers here. I see problems and that's where I think we come full circle in that this is not easy and this is a time of reckoning where we are trying to um, lift up people who have been disadvantaged. There's no doubt about that. But sometimes the ticking the boxes is not the way to do it because there are individual stories and individual situations. And I don't think it's as simple as saying you have to, as a streamer, tell X amount of Indigenous stories. I'm all for it. I'm all for Indigenous stories. And there have been some that I've just loved watching at film festivals and the like. But what I'm saying is don't make anything for just for the sake of making it. And this comes back to the argument or the, the discussion we had last week when it came to streamers having local drama quotas and the networks. And I sat here that wasn't a racist issue, wasn't around race, so, you know, it, before anyone wants to paint that brush, and I said there is no point making having quotas for Australian content if we're just going to serve up crap. All right. Well, the man behind one of the most famous birds on Australian television has passed away. Ernie Carroll, who brought Aussie Ostrich to life, has died at age 92. The news was announced by long-term collaborator and friend Daryl Summers. The Dancing with the Stars host said, I am so grateful for Ernie's early guidance of my career. He auditioned me for the hosting role on Cartoon Corner back in early 1971. I loved him very much and along with my wife Julie, send our deepest sympathies to his family. Ernie played Aussie for 25 out of the 30 years that Hey Hey It's Saturday was on air. Uh, <laughs> Robbo, I once went to a taping of Hey Hey It's Saturday. Oh, I'm jealous. I, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I, I only got to go once. I was at university oh. in Wagga, so I guess it would have been around 92. And uh, we went down to Melbourne and went and watched Bendigo Hey Street Hey being Richmond. recorded. And the yeah, 22 Bendigo Street, Richmond. 
And the thing that struck me weirdest of all was as a viewer, I always assumed Ernie Carroll was underneath the desk with his hand up. He wasn't. He was literally sitting next to Ernie, just out next to Ozzy, just out of really? camera. I didn't know that. He was oh. literally. Oh, that's awesome. He was he was there, so I anyone in too. the studio, any guest could see him yep. doing Ozzy Osbourne going, "Hi, oh. Daryl." Oh, oh my you know. god! And so <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it was like he was back from the dead then for a moment. Wow. Ernie, is that you? Impersonation. <laughs> <laughs> Ozzy Ostrich is back from the dead. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> I'm so jealous of you being able to see that because that is, you know, whether you liked it or not, uh, Hey Hey oh, was such a it. massive part of Australian television. Mm. The thing that always makes me sad about these things and when you hear about legends like this passing away and, and even though, you know, Ernie Carroll hasn't been in the industry a while, you just, you remember what Australian television used to be and I'm going to yeah. sound a little bit like old Grandpa Robbo now for a moment. So <laughs> join with me, children. But uh, it was a wonderful, a wonderful time uh, when you could have a puppet as a star of a primetime television show. <laughs> now, that makes Australian television really, really special. And I also think, of course, of Agro. Agro was in primetime hosting tonight, tonight Live. I just got to redirect puppets, but they were big stars. <laughs> and that's we just don't have that anymore. We've got bloody idiots on maths, you know, who... Oh, Robbo, what, one of the greatest moments for me was when John Blackman came on Studio 10 and brought Dickie Knee oh, with him. Yeah, yeah. And we got to see what <laughs> yeah, Dickie yeah, Knee yes. looked like from the other side. That was very special. And it was literally black gaffer tape. Yeah. The face was just black <laughs> gaffer tape. I, I even posted a picture on my Instagram account at the time. Yeah. And it was so hilarious to me. I thought he might have eyes or something yeah. like that. Oh, no. Well, the, the, <laughs> the rumour mill was oh, that, that from time that. to time there were things stuck to Dickie Knee's face. To that black gaffer tape. Oh, like, oh I believe that. When that Dickie popped up, naughty photos. Yeah, maybe it was a bit of a surprise for everybody on the other <laughs> side of it. Stuff that you couldn't broadcast in that time slot. It's it's a real shame. Um, and look, Ernie Carroll, 92, a hell of an innings. Um, and we have to remember that it was the Summers Carroll production for a long time that those guys made that yeah. uh, and were responsible for navigating and, and thus, you know, the ownership as, as to where it lands today. Um the thing that I thought was most heartwarming was uh, a friend of mine on Twitter shared their experience of Ernie, just briefly, uh, and that for them, as someone who grew up uh, on set on Hey Hey, because both their parents worked on Hey Hey, um, they just had nothing but nice things to say about Ernie Carroll. And I think that speaks volumes mm. for for a young person that grew up was even announced as being born on the show back back in the day to have those fond memories of someone and to be able to say that that genuinely they miss this person even after so many years of not seeing them that that speaks to Ernie's character mm. and, and to the person he was I think yeah couldn't agree more to the ratings race now and it has been the week of finales with Dancing with the Stars All Stars Married at First Sight and Australian Survivor all ending with a bang on 7 564,000 tuned in to see Grant Denyer take out the Mirrorball Trophy on 10 Australian Survivor pulled out their best numbers of the season with an average of 591,000 putting 10 in second place for the night in their primary channel share and as as if it couldn't get any bigger Married at First Sight on nine also had their biggest numbers of the season with 1,207,000. Those massive numbers for MAFs also helped Underbelly, Vanishing Act, with part two on Monday watched by 745,000. 
In other ratings news, a national audience of nearly 2.5 million tuned in for Shane Warne's state funeral last week. The commercial-free broadcast aired across multiple networks and channels, depending on the state. But it was Seven's decision to keep it on their main channel nationally that was the most popular, attracting 1.165 million. I've got to say, Aaron, Warne's memorial memorial service was two and a half hours of commercial-free TV. That's a pretty big feat, and it was pretty good. I didn't get to see it, but I've heard nothing, nothing but rave reviews. Yeah, I watched some of it. Uh, it was good. And I think this is where it comes down to experience with scheduling. Um, you know, you have to think, do I go live? Do I go delayed? What, you know, what's the go? And obviously Seven's decision to go, listen, we're going to put our number one news service on at 6 o'clock and then we're going to go at 7 o'clock, grab your cup of tea, sit down and watch the funeral from 7 o'clock. We'll take off home and away for the night and then run it obviously on 7 Plus nationally for people that do want to watch it live over here in Perth. But, I mean, you know, Nine's decision to run run it in Perth at 4.30 in the afternoon or, or 4 o'clock in the afternoon um, and then and then not run it on the on the, on the the main channel at all and, and run travel guides just didn't work for them. Mm. I mean, there was a clear winner that night and that was the way to do it. Allow people to watch the news and sit back for the evening and watch it and then have it on 7 Plus. And then obviously on 10, it was you know, 10 bold and depending on what area you're in, it was all over the place. So I think that was that was the winner. I think one of the disappointing things for me was if Nine were going to run it on Nine Gem, fine, that's a decision you make. But up here in Queensland, we were still, it was still daylight saving down south and we got it an hour after it started. We were on the turnaround. That was inexplicable because I chased Tech Nine up on that because they had advertised that it would be live in every market. And that they changed in Melbourne that they would put it live on nine, but everywhere else it would be available on nine gem. And then to learn that they were broadcasting it into Brisbane as a delayed thing on nine gem just made no sense. No. And I got a really stupid kind of response. Oh, it's a daylight saving thing, probably. Like, what? That's not even accurate. You know, that, that didn't make any sense to me. What was on 9 Gem that was so important they couldn't uh, drop an hour of that programming? As, as time goes by. Absolutely nothing that couldn't have been dropped, right? <laughs> That's actually oh. the answer. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I was fortunate enough to be in Melbourne on Wednesday night last week and there was a real buzz to the city. There really was mm. an, an electricity. Uh, and to be able to look over and see the MCG in the distance lit up you know, on a Wednesday night, knowing that was happening, seeing it on all of the screens all around the place um, was pretty incredible. Uh, full, full congratulations to Eddie McGuire and Jam TV for an incredible production. I mean, two and a half hours of live, no commercial breaks, and it was seamless. It didn't, there, there was no, you know, random stagey running on putting a mic up or doing something weird or everything just managed to flow. I will offer the last thing. Mark, I got told you can't turn around big events like that in a week or so. Well, I think Eddie proved that you can. Um, Yeah, exactly. The the challenge that I thought is that Eddie, I'd seen Eddie do the rounds, of course, on Wednesday morning promoting it. He was the MC and, of course, his production company doing it. And he was promoting a grand, a big finale, a huge moment at the end. And up until about the two-hour 15 mark, as I said, it was incredible. It was seamless. At that 2.15 mark, Anthony Kalia, apparently Shane Warne was a big, um, uh, what's his name? Who sang the prayer the first time? Andrea Bocelli. What a challenge. Um, 
Bocelli. Thanks very much, Robbo, for the for the support. Yeah, that's Italian. Um, <laughs> apparently, Warnie was a big Bocelli fan. So Anthony Collier saying the prayer, and it was magical. They turned off the lights. They asked everyone to turn on their their um, flash, you know, their their torches on their phones, and the MCG just glittered. It was incredible during that. And then afterwards, and now we're going to have some random jazz trumpet player play the theme uh, to the St Kilda Football Club, Warnie's Warnie's favorite club, when the Saints go marching in which was fine in itself, but then the, the audience started clapping and they were out of time to the trumpeter. So it was just, it didn't work. And then they threw up to Warnie's three kids, who spoke wonderfully during the, the service, ready to unveil the Shane Warne stand. And when the camera cut to them, they clearly didn't know what the hell was going on or when they had to do it. And so eventually reveal the Shane Warne stand, congratulations. And then it was back to Eddie, thanks very much, good night. It just kind of went on the wrong moment. They should have finished with Anthony. Like have the trumpet thing, have Summer Jackson and Brooke, and then like unveil the scene and then play that and end. And it would have been forgivable though. Oh, mate. Like a producer squatting. See, that I can forgive. Oh, a a producer squatting down, shouting at them, saying, do it now, probably would have fixed that last bit, right? (laughs) Like out of shot. (laughs) And and it absolutely is forgivable for what would would have been a one hundred percent faultless production. It was mm. amazing and a great tribute to Shane Warne. Yeah, um, and it I'm does go and actually watch it. show. I, I actually am going to watch it. It does actually show it's possible to create mm-hmm. two and a half hours commercial free live, essentially variety television. I mean to that, Philip. Before we move on, married at first sight. You've got to give it all its dues. Uh, this thing has gone gangbusters. And seriously, is there anything else on TV like it? Uh, well, no. <laughs> um, I, th- I think The Bachelor would love to be it, but it's not going to be. Uh, <laughs> I, th- I think that's why shows like that are so, so out of favour. You know, we've been conditioned to expect fireworks and explosives every minute of, of watching a show like Married at First Sight. Uh, I don't personally like it, as you know, but I did watch I oh, did I watch the it. reunion special and I thought I thought it was amazing TV because I understood everything that was going on in the way they packaged it up. I didn't have to watch yep. the series. Brilliant. So I did think it was a very good Brilliant piece of producing. TV. You could have come into that. Yeah, uh, absolutely. You could have come into that and been mm-hmm. understood everything. Mm-hmm. I was on. quite surprised. Team Domenica. <laughs> yeah. All right, Jesus. coming up, Sarah will have the latest hatches and dispatches and we'll find out what everyone's been watching this week when we head into the TV binge box. You are listening to TV Black Box, the podcast. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And now it's time for Hatches and Dispatches with me, Sarah. Seven Sport presenter Jackie Felgate has called it a day on her career at the network. Ms. Felgate has been with Seven for almost 10 years. On the road and behind the desk, the popular reporter wants to spend more time with her young family. In good news for fans, she's in talks to stay with the Seven Sport family. 
Screen Australia has announced the appointment of Christopher Sharp as head of Scripted. Mr. Sharp will report to head of content Grady Bronston and be in charge of funding programs across film, TV and children's drama. Nikki Rook has been named as Nine's new director of Sydney Sales. Ms. Rook has spent the last five years in radio sales with Southern Cross Media and prior to that spent some time at Seven. The sales guru says she can't think of a more exciting time to be joining Nine. And to wrap up Hatches, Justin Stevens is a new boss of ABC News. He began his career working on Nine Sunday in 2005 and since then has quickly climbed the producer ladder at the ABC. After four years of being the executive producer of 7.30, Mr. Stevens begins his new job this week and we wish him all the best. And that is this week's Hatches and Dispatches. Hatches and Dispatches? Hatches and Dispatches. <laughs> you want to say it again one more time? Leave me alone. Okay. <laughs> Thank can, you, Sarah. I just okay. want to jump in really quick, Rob. Can we? Can I jump in before you do that, Rob? Oh, apparently you are. <laughs> I, I, I just want to say really quickly that, um, first of all, congratulations to Justin on his appointment uh, as head of news for the ABC. He has possibly the hardest job at the ABC right now, and his experience as the executive producer of 7.30 will have to be heavily, heavily leveraged because he's got to find a new 7.30 presenter. And Sarah Ferguson. Well, mate, there's absolutely no guarantees. That's the catch. Tony Jones will be the EP. There's absolutely no guarantees. It could be anybody. That's it the reality It might not be anybody if there's a quota. Oh, play on. <laughs> well, look, we will refer back... We'll refer back to this moment <laughs> when the decision is made. A par- pardon my interruption. <laughs> All right. Time to open the TV binge box. And I'm going to start tonight. Uh, it's been a weird week of TV viewing for me, I will say. Obviously, we were doing the maths, loving the maths. Um, but also loving the Is It Cake <laughs> We're watching the family and I are gathering around the TV each night to watch an episode as we have dinner. Uh, the family that watches Kate together stays together, I guess. Jeepers. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but uh, I love this show. Love it. It's just such a simple... It's such a simple show and it does what it says on the tin. Is it cake? Well, is it? Uh, you know, we have arguments about which one is the cake. We love it. We, you know, it's great. But I also... So, so one of them's not a cake? I, I just don't follow the premise. Yeah. Right, oh, so once, Robert, let me talk you through it. Once, no, 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 please. It was a joke. Oh, my goodness. I understand <laughs> no, how the show works. Let me talk you no. through it because oh, they will have something like sorry, a bowling everyone. ball yep. and a cake that looks like a bowling ball. Oh, okay. And the premise is, yeah. is it cake? Yeah, right. And one of them isn't. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, okay. I will uh, I'll check that out. It's wholesome right, family viewing. Um, <laughs> yes. That's on Netflix, by the way. Um, I've also been watching all the classic Doctor Who multi-Doctor episodes on Binge Bo- uh, BritBox, sorry, on BritBox. And that means the three Doctors, the five Doctors, and the two <laughs> really inventive names for these episodes. Oh, uh, I haven't moved on to the new series, uh, but, um, yeah, I, I've really been enjoying that. Uh, I've also, Amazon Prime Video is just full of the goods, I've got to tell you. They've got the American series of Wheel of Fortune. And, oh, cool. oh my God, I'm devouring it. And, and just to see... Um, Pat Sajak, is it Pat Sajak and uh, 
Vanna, Vanna, Vanna White. Vanna White. Yeah. Um, and they're so old and yeah. still trying to act like it was 30 years ago. I mean, breaking ago. news, they're old, mate. Yeah. <laughs> but it's really watchable. Um, and the other one that I found myself watching on Amazon Prime Video was... Come ride the little train that is rolling down the tracks to the junction. Pinnacle Junction. Oh, Forget about the kids. It's time to relax at the junction. What is that? Have you never seen very Pinnacle old, Junction? Very old, very old, Bravo. Wait till he starts watching Little House on the Prairie. We are. Hey, I've got friends on Little House on the Prairie. Let's not dish that. Uh, It was. It was. It's been a trip down memory lane today, and uh, that song will get me every time. Philip, bring us into the twenty year twenty twenty two. Well, I'm I'm not sure I can. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Look, I tried to. I'll give you that. I, I tried watching a show called The Responder on SBS. Um, it's a uh, Martin Freeman is the sounds like someone at a call centre who says hello, please hold. Hello, as his, please as his hold. first responder. So oh. <laughs> um, I think he's a paramedic anyway. Uh, look, I couldn't. I, it's a sort of show that would normally really appeal to me, and it was just so dark and so depressing right from the outset. And he he plays a you know tortured paramedic who has all sorts of issues and. I'm assuming goes on to kill someone because that seemed to be where it was heading. So, look, I gave it a go. Didn't like it. Probably won't try it again. Uh, what I did like is I've started watching Fargo on Stan, which <laughs> I'm Excellent. Sure, yeah, I'm sure everyone in the world seems to have seen this series. It, Great it's, movie. It's got about six series, I think. Um, not the movie, the TV series. No, I understand, yeah. but I, I only know the movie. I haven't watched the series. Uh, well, I haven't even watched the movie, so it was all new to me. Uh, you know, I have a man crush on Billy Bob Thornton. He's um, was that public uh, knowledge? Did we know? <laughs> just checking my notes. Sorry, I've well, got notes on everyone. I what is going on? <laughs> He's just such an excellent actor, and he plays just a great villain in just it. Trying uh, to find that. No- oh yeah, Billy Bob Thornton. Yeah, there we go. Seriously. <laughs> but I also, I also wanted a bit of light relief, so I checked out a couple of episodes of um, Starstruck, which is this really cute show starring. Um, a Kiwi comedian called Rose Matafeo. Excellent. Yeah, she's just, it's just a, she's written the show and she's one of the leads. She's their hapless New Zealand nanny that has a one-night stand with a guy that turns out to be a massive British film star and then they start a relationship. Oh, Notting Hill. It's been Notting Hill, but but, uh, quite a bit ruder, I would imagine. (laughs) Uh, It's certainly a modern take on it, shall we say. But, look, it's lots of fun, lots of laugh. And I also um, watched a movie, which I don't know how I've never seen it, called The Help, which I'm sure you all have. Uh, If you want to just watch something beautiful and inspirational, it's one of those films. It won, I think it won or at least was nominated Mm -hmm. for a bunch of Academy Awards. Octavia Spencer and Viola Davis. So just amazing actors, amazing writing. And it's, you know, one of those heartwarming, teary little movies that will lift your spirits. Mm. Aaron, what have you been watching? Uh, I was wondering if anyone actually watches what I watched, but then I I felt today I cannot get any worse than US episodes of Wheel of Fortune, old old episodes of Doctor Who, Cake and Petticoat Junction that started in 1963. I think Aaron will be the judge once you roll out your watch list. Oh, no. 
Well, it's still bad, but just not <laughs> as bad as that. <laughs> well played. Of course, all wholesome content, you'll notice. Very yeah. wholesome. Okay, so I watched um, the finale, obviously, of Dancing with the Stars, um, and it was really great having Johnny Ruffo back. He, he came back to the dance floor, obviously, what with what he's been through and, mm. and just did a beautiful Horrendous. dance and got yeah. a standing ovation. I, did, I didn't actually see that um, in the promo or anything that he was going to be in there, so that was a bit of a surprise. So that was great. Um, also been watching Grey's Anatomy on Disney+. Plus. Uh, it's the 18th season, and, you know, for some shows that have gone on forever, I, they actually do find genuinely a way to keep that show going and, and actually being fresh. It's, it's still good. I, you know, it's still big in America. I think it's the second second most popular show on that network. So, yeah. And the other one I watched was the Underbelly um, two-parter. That, I don't know how they made... That was terrible. It was the most bo- boring <laughs> lot of show I've ever watched. It, I don't know. They probably shouldn't have put it under the Underbelly series because you were, you know, sort of thinking there was going to be a bit more shootings and stuff. But I know it was about, I know it was about Melissa Caddick, but it was just boring. And they try to tell her end story, but no one knows what the end story is. So, you know... Yeah, it's that, a bit weird on that, that front, that, isn't they it? They try to offer, you know, what happened with the whole foot. I mean, we don't know. She could have been eaten by a shark. She could be in Paris enjoying herself. It could be anything. So I don't know how they could have actually offered an ending when, when we don't know what it was. The only thing I will say, because um, I think people know I'm into scheduling and programming, um, and this is uh, 1 to 7 and 1 to 9. Obviously, with 7 did very well with, with how they programmed Warney, and that actually... Cost nine the week. Seven won as a network last week. Um, nine won primary by one share point. But that one decision, um, you know, put seven over the line. But with Hamish Turner with Underbelly, it wasn't that great. And it was supposed to be a four-part series. And that definitely would not have rated 720,000 over four consecutive Sundays. It would have started dropping away. So the fact that Hamish has put, you know, the, the you know the four episodes as a two-night event... Uh, that that gave them some great ratings. Um, well, that's smart programming, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. That's what I'm saying. Very smart programming, and it was off the back of Underbelly. On uh, sorry, off the back of Maths on both nights, and very smart to do a, a mini series rather than over four consecutive weeks. So, excellent. All right. Just just on the show, Sarah. Uh, I actually only watched two things this week: uh, Bridgerton season two. Which, um, oh, were you disappointed because there isn't all the naughty stuff? I was about naughty to say there apparently. isn't all the sex in it. There was just like the one titty at the end, and that was kind of it. Well, no, because like I didn't want to watch it with the in laws because the first one it like starts off, you're like, oh, this is sweet, and then all of a sudden, like, bam, you know, and you're like, oh my god. So, this one we didn't watch with them, and it turned out to be just fine. Um, and then the other thing we watched, except for the very last episode, because it's not mm. out yet, was the dropout. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Robo, Robo, Robo. Uh, I watched a fantastic series called This Is Going To Hurt. It's a UK series. It's on Foxtel and Binge. It stars Ben Wishaw and it's based on Adam Kay's book. Yes. Uh, he is uh, an OBGYN in, in a UK hospital uh, and it is a really, really fantastic series. It's a dramedy, so there's a few laughs in there. It can get very heavy at times. It's seven episodes. It is fantastic. Fantastic. Please watch that one. I'm continuing with Minx, um, which is that wonderful uh, series on Stan. Mm-hmm. Uh, that also hits you in the face. <laughs> 
there, again, I believe, last week. Again, for the drama. Good articles. Yeah, watching for the drama, for the articles. And again, I'll say it for you, Mulkey, a sea of dicks. Mm. Uh, and <laughs> it, it's still going, and it is absolutely wonderful. Uh, they drop every Thursday, so it's kind of, it's almost like it's the olden days, and I'm loving it as well, you know? I just wish I could turn it on and see Ozzy Ostrich at some point. Uh, and you I've can. Also Go to been- heyhey.tv. Yeah, I'm not paying Five dollars or six dollars subscription. You can watch all the episodes of Hey Hey at Saturday. Or wait for the alleged two or three specials that are coming this year. Yeah, hell. I'll wait for that. And oh, finally, great. I've yeah, finally I've never watched uh, an episode of it, so I've started to watch Modern Family, yeah. uh, and oh, I'm enjoying cool. it. But I don't like the sudsy, hoaxy, pokesy. Like things at the end where family's wonderful and blah, we all learn lessons and blah blah blah. Well, you are in the wrong series. Yeah, but up until that, I like it. But no, I'm liking it. It's good. It's 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 a nice place to be, Rob. That's that's it from me. Thank you. Could the viewers' advocate please bring us home? I am in full agreement with my West Australian-based friend Aaron. Um, the Vanishing Act was shit house. From almost every choice that they made was poor. To do it at, from a first-person narration from Melissa Caddick's point of view just meant that the ending had to be messy and it was horrendous. They did exactly the thing. Hypothetically, this is what could have happened. Oh, but maybe this. Oh, but then maybe she's on a yacht. For fuck's sake. All the, as it turned out, um, about three hours of drama that the show ended up being, um, it turns out is basically a promo for a podcast that that Nine are putting out starting next week. All about <laughs> Melissa Caddick and the search for her. Um, I don't know why they're waiting a week. They should have had that podcast drop today. But what yeah. do I know yeah, for Hill of Beans? Um, unless the first episode's not ready. But it's a big co-pro between Kate McClymont and Tom Steinfurt and all sorts of people involved. Um, it was just disappointing. I thought that uh, Kate Atkinson's... Is she the one? I don't know. The lady yeah. that played Melissa thought she... Thanks, Aaron. She did a great job with very not much. It was very not much. In fact, edited through it, of course, because it's a recent story, was a whole bunch of nine news breaks and news readers. Just they've cut it out of the news and put it in and the 60-minute story. So they, they were cut using the that to, to do some exposition, were they? Yeah, well, to sort of lean into the fact that then all of a sudden when she became news, she was in the news. Mm. Uh, and at that point, it had kind of been suggested in the story that she hoofed town and was trying to jump the country but then all of a sudden her face was all over TV. So, uh, well, all over Channel 9 and 9 Mars <laughs> anyway. Um, so, it, look, a great result from a ratings point of view. I wouldn't have said it was the best story. I have seen people complain that there wasn't enough boobs for it to be an underbelly story. I'll take that as a comment. <laughs> so it, it landed in my not very happy list. On my um, my good list uh, was uh, Matter of First Sight. I thought that it finished... Strong up until the end of Sunday night. I thought that the sitting back on the couches with the um, so-called experts wasn't huge, but it rated the highest of all of them. All it did is prove that Cody is Australia's biggest douchebag, and that was a huge call given that he had to overcome Mitch because Mitch (laughs) was Australia's biggest douchebag up until that point, uh, and I'm firmly Team Domenica as well. I mentioned in um, Angst at the end of last week's episode, this is my final um, show I'm going to talk about, on Paramount Plus, the Halo TV series that has had a fraught journey to get to our screens um, is wonderful in that as someone who has played the Halo computer game in every iteration and loves it, uh, I was so keen to see the central character, the Master Chief, 
land on our screens and see that universe come to pass and how all of that sits. Um, it is a story that is set before the first game. Uh, so it's they get to make up a whole bunch of stuff. And lore, unfortunately, they're just making up shit that isn't real uh, within that universe and within that Bible. So unfortunately it's turned into from the I have to watch the rest of the season and hate watch it because <laughs> next week's episode is critical if they really don't get it right next week I'm there'll be angry letters written not that anyone mm. care but you they, really have gotten old writing a letter to the ABC <laughs> right, I'll be writing all of the well the ABC won't care about it it's on Paramount Plus but nonetheless I'm sticking in with Halo for now because Cortana's meant to turn up and she better be next week to all the D generation and uh, late show fans who got that, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> all right, that brings us to the end of TV Black Box. Don't forget for the latest news, exclusives, and stuff you won't hear anywhere else, go to tvblackbox.com.au. Remember, it's where people in the industry get their news. My thanks to Abby Mickelson, who produced this episode, with writing support from David Robinson. I'm Rob McKnight, and we have enjoyed your company. We'll see you next week on the TV Black Box. Yeah. Oh, who wrote the Petticoat shit? Junction? There's a little hotel called the Shady Rest at the Junction. Petticoat Junction. It is run by Kate. Come and be her guest at the Junction. Petticoat Junction. And that's Uncle Joe. He's a moving kind of slow at the Junction. Petticoat Junction. 